Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 45, Back to School. I feel very confident in this next statement. All of you dear listeners have been subjected in some form to receiving an education. Whether you went to a government funded school or a private one, you have spent a good portion of your youth sitting behind a desk being taught by someone in a wide variety of topics until such time as you got out. Many of you may have continued into tertiary education going to university or other institutions. In Australia, we have primary school from about the age of five until you're around about 12 or 13, and then you go to high school. Some leave early and take on apprenticeships at about 16 or so, while the rest generally stay on until year 12 and graduate to either get a job or take an offered university position, the offering of which is based on their exam scores. We have public schools, which are the government-funded ones, and private schools, which are the fee-based ones, which makes us different from the United Kingdom in that the two terms are reversed, with the public schools being the expensive ones. And I will confess here, I still do not understand the terms used in the rebellious colonies. Freshmen I kind of get, but sophomores, juniors, seniors, it's all a bit of a guess at what stage you might be at. Think you have middle school as well. When I started looking into education, I did find out that sophomores are second year students, and the joke is that sophos is Greek for wise and moros is Greek for foolish, so a sophomore is basically a wise fool. But I'm not here to try and work out the cultural intricacies of education in America. Because hey, we are all about the 19th century Victorian England after all. It says so on the door on the way in. So, if you were growing up in Victorian England, just what sort of education were you going to get? Well, we do like asking the hard questions around here, so keep listening because we're going back to school for this episode. So, while I'm sure I've triggered many of us with PTSD remembering school, you need to remember that for many of us in Victorian England, school was not actually an option. Yes, that's right. You're around five years old, cute as a button, and with your whole life ahead of you. All 40 odd years of it. But mum and dad, if they're both still alive, work incredibly long hours for a tiny amount of money. And since you're five, it's time for you to start paying your way. Off to work you go. You might have to go work on the family farm, labouring as best you could. Other children got to work in the mines. And I'm not kidding here. Coal was of course an essential element to all industry during this time. And as a youngster, you might be given a tiny damp spot to sit in, alone in the dark, holding a rope. And when the coal carts came down your tunnel, you'd pull that rope to open the shaft door and let them by. And as you got older, you'd be one of the boys pushing those very carts. Young girls, if they were lucky, could get a job as a domestic, 
that is working as a servant in someone's house. Other choices might be selling items to passers-by on the street. Things like matches or flowers would be your stock and trade. The lucky boys were the ones that managed to gain an apprenticeship. It might mean long hours, hard work, and basically being someone's slave for an indentured period, but it not only gave you a life skill, but could also raise your social standing and put you in a better position for the rest of your life. Because companies could pay children cheaper wages, they were sought after as employees. Working in a factory, most certainly ones without any consideration to worker safety, could see your small hands put to good use in maintaining equipment and cleaning it. Most of the jobs you might get offered would pay around about 25 pence a week. That's about 50 cents Australian or 40 cents US currency. I agree it is virtually nothing, but when your family is living below the proverbial breadline, every pence counts. This was the situation until 1842 when the laws were finally changed and children under 10 were no longer allowed to work in the mines. This created a flow-on effect into other areas of Victorian society. It was being realised that giving even a basic education was of benefit to society as a whole. I mean, these were children that could not read or write, and this was, after all, the greatest empire in the world. And with the huge increases in industrialization came education. Part of this, as always, was economic. Paper, ink and postage were expensive. What was the point of knowing how to read and write when doing it was basically an expensive exercise in telling something to someone? So people simply didn't bother to learn. But with the advent of the penny post, go back and have a listen to episode 25, and better, cheaper production of paper, writing became a more viable option in communication. A child's education began with Sunday school. The clergy wanted children to be able to read the Bible, and so it was the priests began teaching the children to read in Sunday lessons. But with the new changes in working legislation, children now began going to some form of school. Many schools were set up to be attended to in the evening, as most of the children worked during the day. The crudest of these was literally going to a woman's house where she would teach you and a few others basics like reading and writing. Imagine being in a small, cramped space in a lady's home. You have a small slate and chalk to write with and are learning to write by imitating what she has written. But remember that even after a few months, you're going to know more about reading and writing than your parents do. And then along came John Pounds. John had been born in 1766 and apprenticed as a shipwright in Portsmouth. As a teenager, he was badly crippled when he fell into a dry dock. This was just 18 days after his father had died, so you could say he was having a rough trot of it during this time. From this tragedy, he moved on to being a shoemaker. Fortunately for him, he could read and write and even knew some arithmetic. And he really should be called St. John, because having this knowledge was something he wanted to pass on to others that had grown up like him. 
he would carry basic food, things like baked potatoes with him whereas he roamed the streets looking for poor or homeless children. With starving children being everywhere, it should come as no surprise that he might have as many as 40 children at a time in his small workshop. And it was here that the ragged schools were created in around 1818. Thomas Guthrie is the man often credited with creating those ragged schools, but even Thomas is on record as stating that the concept began with John Pounds. Ragged schools came by that name because of, and I'm sure this comes as no surprise, that children would often be wearing rags as that was all that they had. John did this because it was the right thing to do. He knew that education was a way out of incredible poverty. Giving children food was the only currency that they would relate to, and they had no idea that education was a way out of their horrible existence. And he is well remembered in the modern era. In 1999, a public survey for Man of the Millennium title was taken and John won it. And this was in an area of the UK that counted Admiral Horatio Nelson and Charles Dickens as locals. He was a man who truly believed in what he was doing. He didn't ask for money or acclaim. John Pounds did what he did because it was the right thing to do and he could do it. I think there's something there for all of us. What I do love was that his idea basically went viral. Upper classes saw this as being benevolent to those less fortunate and in keeping with their Christian values. By 1844, a union of ragged schools had formed that provided education to not only the poor, but also orphans and other children that could not be cared for by their parents. In all, around about 40,000 children benefited from ragged schools. Not bad for a concept started by a kind man and a few potatoes. It was also in 1844 that Parliament created a law requiring that children working in factories be given six half days of schooling a week. This law was enforced far more strongly than one that had been passed 11 years earlier in 1833 that said children under 13 should be getting half their work time in education. But for most of the 19th century, the only people that got any sort of education were the children that didn't have to work. And it really sounds weird saying that. Anyway, the children of the upper classes would usually begin their education with a governess. Men didn't do this sort of educational work. Apparently there just wasn't enough money in it for them. These ladies would teach the children in their homes where the lucky little kids would be educated in basic literacy. This would last until around the age of 10, at which time the children would go to a public school or private school if you're here in the Antipodean part of the empire. And those going to public school were pretty much all boys. Unless otherwise pursued by their parents at this stage of their lives, the girls' academic education was pretty much over. The only girls that might receive more education, in the general sense of education, were those of the higher, middle and upper classes. At this time, they would learn French and music, usually the piano, and other skills such as sewing. It was naturally assumed that women would get married and have children and thus not a need for an education. And I'm going to go off topic here for all you ladies who may be possibly shocked by the misogyny here. My parents were married in the 60s, 
That's 1960s for all of you thinking I'm over 100. You're hilarious. But when they went for a home loan in that decade, only my dad's income could be counted towards repayment of the loan because it was assumed that my mother would have children and thus her income could not be assessed towards loan repayments. I think we can all agree that change has definitely taken time. Moving on. For those women in the 1800s who did not marry early, well, they only had a couple of choices. They might be the caretakers for their parents and siblings or else become governesses. Fortunately, this did change throughout the century though. In 1848, Queen's College was founded, offering girls over the age of 12 the opportunity of further education. Within a decade, other schools for women began to open and by 1878, women were actually admitted to London University. Now, I think I've spoken about a few of the amazing women of the Victorian era, and I'm happy to say there are more to come. And if you remember them, I think we can all agree that the pattern of them having parents that supported or encouraged them in further education has shown that the returns greatly outweighed any misogyny. Just imagine what we might have discovered or created or invented if more parents had been enlightened in this apparent age of enlightenment. The public schools I spoke of did educate, but to some degree it was an education designed to create young men just like the older men in Victorian England. These were to be the masters of the universe, living in a world that was theirs to control and exploit. They were taught subjects that gave them a working knowledge of what they would need in the future. Being taught lessons in something that might educate them about the social and economic issues of lower economic classes? Yeah, that didn't happen so much. Or at all. This culture of educational privilege has been pointed to as a strong reason why there are so many social problems that existed at the time and weren't addressed properly. Those with the ability to make substantial change were ignorant of the need to do so. These students were rich, had everything that they wanted, and the influential social networks these schools created and fostered would sometimes last their whole lives. It was an insular social club that was focused on maintaining the social status quo, and it did not like outsiders. But while ignorant, they weren't stupid. With the industrialization of the Victorian era and education becoming more prevalent throughout the economic classes, there were those that shone despite all the challenges. It was for these talented individuals that scholarships were created. I am sure most of us are familiar with the concept. You have the educational ability that you can't pay for, but the school elects to finance your education for both altruistic and self-serving reasons and it was often the members of the middle class that were given this opportunity. I mentioned briefly a few sentences ago about the networking of these schools, and it brings to mind the axiom, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that certainly holds true today in many instances, but it could be argued that this was the critical element of education during the Victorian era. The men you met at school were the scions of important, influential and rich families, Families from middle-class backgrounds knew this and what it meant. To them, the education itself wasn't so much as important as the connections that could be made moving in these more affluent circles. 
Those of the middle classes strive to rise to a better social position, one that provided for the family now and generations to come. For those of the lower upper classes, they sought access into the genuine aristocracy. You know, the ones they have all the titles and know who their great-great-great-grandfather was who was killed at the Battle of Wherever. But it would have been difficult for anyone, especially those of the lower economic classes, to go to a public school. There is a long history of reports of bullying and sloppy teaching throughout their existence, and it was during this time that teaching as we know it today was forming into a proper disciplined profession. But the times, as they say, were changing. And in 1870, Parliament enacted a law that stated children between the ages of 5 to 12 were to have education made available to them, and because of this, public schools increased exponentially across the kingdom. However, attendance wasn't mandatory. It cost a pence a week to attend, and I think by now you understand just how much every penny counted when you were living just above, right on, or below the proverbial breadline. In 1891, though, the pence a week cost for schooling was removed by the government, which made education freely available to any child. Now, I know I'm not alone here in thinking that when I think of education in the United Kingdom, I think of the universities such as Oxford or Cambridge. Well, they were certainly the top tier centres for education in the kingdom, but to attend, you had to be male. Of course you also had to be of the Church of England and also unmarried. I don't know why the latter was such an issue, but there you go. It was here that the type of education you received changed dramatically. You were expected to be more autonomous in your learning. It wasn't just about learning what had come before you, but also learning how to research and discover. And if you thought making connections was important during your schooling, well, if you did end up going to university, as Spinal Tap would argue, it was here that those connections went to 11. I could write a book on the ethical conundrum this presents, and to be honest, I kind of did, and then I deleted it out. A meritocracy is something that I do believe in, the best person for the job and so on, but it's kind of a rabbit hole that still exists to this day. Suffice to say that it was clearly recognised that who you knew was as important as what you knew. Your entire life could be influenced by who knew you, what someone might say to someone else, or what they might offer you in terms of your future opportunities. Those from the lower classes knew this was the case. If you got your foot into the door, you knew you were playing their game, their rules. As they say, Principles are all very good on a full stomach. This was a society that was strictly divided, not only economically, but also socially. It was really hard to move up in the world. But thanks to this expanding education system, it was actually possible. Merit did count in a kingdom with very strict social rules. And I will speculate a little here, but I think that this aspect is part of what we all love about the Victorian era. It was a time of immense social constructs, but thanks to ability, we have so many examples of people that, like Cream, rose to the top. So I do think it was during this time that meritocracy finally got to rise. 
and even today we feel the effects of that and get to enjoy the benefits. And before I finish this episode, there is something else I'd like to mention. Because what was also happening with an increasingly literate population was the increase in publishing and papers and pamphlets and books. Industrialization was making it faster and cheaper to print, which snowballed into the publishing industry, now meeting the demands of an increasingly literate society. I do like that teaching people to read and write created more industries for people to be employed in. Kind of like a win-a-win right there. And I'd like to give a big thank you to Aubrey, who suggested a podcast on children and their education. It was only through researching this that I learned about John Pound, and finding a true altruist who only thought of others is a wonderful thing. And on that thought, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at VictorianGaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.